to this episode of the Republic of Middle-Aged Men. Uh, you have your hosts as normal. You've got myself, Tim, and Lachlan. Howdy. And Ruben. G'day. Uh, guys, you've, you've got me to cave in the peer pressure again. I've given the Kraken a go. I'm just <laughs> cracking it open again. Hey, hey. There's a dad joke for you. There's a dad joke for you. Pouring some into my nice little glass there. And I shan't speak like a pirate. But uh, I can confirm it is very nice. If you're going to speak like a uh, pirate, you can save it for the nautical um, analogies. That's cool. Yes. And maybe even do a shanty. (laughs) (laughs) What are you... uh, putting back there welcome with your drink and going back to a uh, very old school favourite mm. it's a uh, Jack Daniels and Coke it's been a very oh. long time but uh, wow just how I remember it legit Coca-Cola actually funnily enough I prefer uh, Pepsi with uh, Jack Daniels rather than Coke there you go I haven't you tried with? that combination <laughs> have not tried it yeah it's been a long 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 time since I've had one but uh, yeah quite nice for a change hey Timmy do you usually put like a little earbud in or something because I'm getting an echo I do I'll do that now while uh, you tell us what you're drinking I'll just change um, cameras yeah yeah I, uh, I had a mate come over and uh, hang out for the first time in a while and um, he left some beers in the fridge so I'm finishing them off it's a furphy. That's clearly a good mate if he's uh, leaving beers in your fridge. Well, this particular mate, you would be tempted to think of him like Socrates, like he comes around and talks philosophy, but unlike Socrates, he brings his own drinks. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, Probably it's... Had shoes on the door, right? <laughs> uh, probably not the whole time. Probably not. Definitely not the whole time, actually. Probably when I... Probably not. Probably only for five minutes when I first arrived. (laughs) Hey, I've got a beard. I've got a belly. Uh, I enjoy good food and and wine that I didn't make. There's lots of similarities. Mate, if you uh, start turning up to someone's house in a bed sheet, we'll know the conversion is complete. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a bad idea. <laughs> Did someone say toga party? <laughs> oh, Maybe. yeah. All right. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure what the, the implications of toga parties are, but um, I feel like like it has to involve fondue. Yeah, I, I was thinking of asterisks and oblix as well for some reason. Uh... <laughs> well, you just gave me an idea, actually. I, th- I think when we do our uh, face-to-face, perhaps we should wear togas. Oh wow! All right, I'm not sure the internet's ready for that. <laughs> uh, look, I'm sure we can G-rate it a little bit. It's all good. So Excellent. yeah, so um, school's back this week, so that's a bit exciting. Um, my kids were both a bit anxious about that tonight, and uh, I've yeah, fortunately been able to organise to drop them off in the morning to help them deal with that. But that's like four months at least for them of not going to school and seeing their friends face to face so it's a pretty big deal how, how it's are been you guys 
Yeah, all right. I mean, um, I actually had my um, one who's in year one. He went back last week. So sort of did that sort of staggered return thing. Mm. Um, he was great and was quite excited about it, but at the same time um, was uh, had gotten quite comfortable sort of being at home, liked being around the family unit and sort of having our thing. Um, but he was, he was quite all right. And then uh, my oldest is going back tomorrow. Um, he's super excited to see his mates. So um, not too apprehensive. He's just really keen to get get there and see his friends and stuff again. So uh, should be good. Yeah, nice. How about, how about uh, yours, Rubes? Yeah, I think it'll be good for the kids. Um, my oldest doesn't give a crap. He's happy to stay at home. But my youngest is going to miss his mates. But they've been going two days a week anyway because of... Um, just the way I'm set up with uh, essential workers and that, so it's not like a huge shock to their system. Okay, that's good. I'm just upset about the extra ironing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Wait, I'll give you a secret. We we don't iron in this house <laughs> ever. So we, as soon as the clothes are washed, they get put on the clothes line on coat hangers. Everything out. And we just let them dry that way. Yeah. And it works. There's no, no wrinkles. It's it's all good. Um, I think part of it is the shirts that I buy are kind of friendly for that. They, they're not the like real cottony ones that... Yeah, I don't need it. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I feel like it's one of those things that we're about to go to Mars in a couple of years. We should be able to figure out how to make business shirts that don't need ironing. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's right. pretty good, decent non-iron stuff these days but <clears throat> I don't know I used to wear a, a suit tie business shirt every day for work and um, I haven't even done that for a while even when we were in the office you know mm. more recently I think the workplace has gotten a heck of a lot more casual over the last few years so um, you know COVID's only amplified that I reckon so um, <laughs> I don't think too many people are going to be coming back wearing a tie that's for sure yeah, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, it's too bad. All right, well let's uh, let's get into this week's reading. So, chapter six, we're past halfway. Woo! <laughs> um, really enjoyed this week's reading. Um, mm. Doesn't feel it was heavy, but it's not like the last two books we've had to take three weeks each to get through them. Um, yeah, and you know, I know we still have half a book left, so might be opening our traps a little bit too soon but it was refreshing to be able to get halfway through a chapter in one week (laughs) rather than a third of the way in and have your brain exploding and i actually found this week that i wanted to like i was really in the zone reading it like just this is really interesting and i couldn't wait to read the next bit and i was even getting like a little bit frustrated that i had to pause just to underline things and write things down because I just wanted to keep going <laughs> nice did you guys have a similar experience yeah for um, sure um, I think it's super uh, interesting just so <clears throat> I, I think it's just because it was also like um, written in such a way that it was feeling very conversational whereas I know like last week um, we're looking at some like pretty uh, out there sort of concepts and things like that that you're sort of having to go back and like reread a couple of times to sort of make sense of what they're sort of saying i think it just sort of had a bit of a logical flow to it so it's a bit a bit more uh yeah 
but you just wanted to keep reading about you, Rubes. Yeah, yeah, I felt the same, but I, I think it's probably because they've sort of laid down the foundations, and we did the we you know we did the hard yards last week. Um, so now they're kind of just when they're referring to things, it's like, oh yeah, okay, I know what he's talking about now. Um, yeah. So it just flowed a lot better in that sense, because they um yeah, so they basically uh they sort of at the start of book six they're still sort of talking about uh what a philosopher is or something to that effect isn't it yeah yeah that's right um they they basically say look it looks like the true and false philosophers have been revealed so we understand what they kind of look like uh so then they ask the question all right so uh which one of those two classes are the ones that should be the rulers should it be the true philosopher or the false philosopher? Um, yeah, that kind of seems like a pretty obvious question, but um, he still asks it. Uh, yeah. he's, it's right. The next question is this. If philosophers have the capacity to grasp the eternal and the immutable, while those who have no such capacity are not philosophers, philosophers and are just lost in the multiplicity and change, which of the two should uh, take charge of the state? Um, to, to be quite honest, that seems like a bit of a no-brainer to me. Yeah. Yeah, agree. So, um, the the way that he tries to argue that though, rather than just going, well, it must be the true philosopher, and you know, because that's what I am, <laughs> Ra- yeah. rather than taking that approach, um, he decides to go through. Well, what is the nature of the true philosopher? Mm. Yes, that's right, uh, and, yeah. and start working through it. Yeah, um, um, I like I like where he kicks off from. Even though he sort of says. Um, well, there's something interesting in the, the fact that he says um, he's talking about these forms, you know, these these realities like we were talking about last week. Um, and he's basically saying that that's the real reality. That's the, the, the most pure part of reality um, over sort of what he was referring to as multiplicity, which is kind of more like, um, it's kind of like saying the ideas or these forms, these concepts are, are more real than the physical um, which I thought it's interesting because that's that's sort of like his whole thing, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, but, but the, the reason he says that that's important is he says it's like, well, um, yeah, I'll just read it because obviously he's going to say it better than I do because um, they're referring to the people who don't think like philosophers being blind. Uh, and he says, yeah. but surely blind is just how you would describe men who have no true knowledge of reality and no clear standard of perfection in their mind to which they can turn as a painter turns to his model and which they can study closely before they start laying down rules in the world about what is admirable and what is right or good where such rules are needed or maintained as guardians uh, any that already exist so basically you're saying like if you don't have like a standard like the philosophers are the ones that can see the the, the purest form like the, the purest truth and he's like, so that's your standard. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that standard, then, you know, what good are you? How can you be making rules about things when you don't know what the standards are? Hmm. That was how I read it anyway. Yeah, well, I think it links in with the stuff we were talking about last week just around, um, you know, do you have opinions or do you have knowledge? And, um, you know, uh, do you know the part or do you know the whole? And if you don't know the whole you know, then really you just have an opinion on one aspect, you know? 
Well, I think it's interesting because he's basically saying, look, if you've got nothing to aim at, then how mm-hmm. are you going to hit anything? Um, which I think kind of, because there's sort of this question hanging over the entire book. It's like his way of thinking is, I'm going to set up this hy- hypothetical and it's going to show you, um, and we're going we're gonna to reason from that hypothetical, which seems a little odd these days. But having mm-hmm. said that, you can kind of see what he's doing when he says that because it's like he's giving you an ideal or something to aim at. And we kind of look at that ideal and we're like, that's not going to work. It seems a bit ridiculous. That's not going to work in real life. But I think this what this is kind of pointing towards is like, yeah, yeah, but here's your ideal and it's mm. something to point at. So it kind of, it almost validates um, the way that he's using like a hypotheticals as a technique of reason. So I thought that was interesting. Not for sure. Yeah, he's he's... It's almost like a reverse Eden. Like he's trying to build a society before anything corrupts it. Well, I, I think he's just trying to build a society that you can avoid the corruption. Yeah. Um, it's um. Well, we sort of talk on that a little bit further on, so we won't uh, we won't steal our own thunder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cool, cool. All right, so let's move on to the uh, nature of the philosopher. So there's several things that uh, he, he goes through here. So we'll start with uh, that the philosopher loves knowledge. So that ties into what we are talking about last week too. Yeah. So yeah, knowledge and uh, knowledge and truth, because he he sort of intermingles truth and knowledge sort of back and forth. I think so. Um, yeah, I found it really hard to differentiate the difference between when he was saying, you know, truth and knowledge, but... Hmm. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, do, do you think, though, that one can understand knowledge but not be truthful? Maybe he's making that distinction that you can have, be a lover of knowledge but you also are a lover of truthfulness. Oh, I don't yeah. think he's talking about necessarily maybe like the act of truth, but I think he's saying like knowledge is truth. It's the truth of the thing that you're trying to learn rather than the opinion of a thing, if you know what I mean? Oh um, yeah. And, yep. and I think that's why he sort of in, interchanges them a little bit. Cause, um, like in his mind, it's, I think separating the difference between what people call knowledge, which is opinion versus actual knowledge, which is truth in his mind. I, I think that's how he's trying to explain it. Um, he sort of jumps yeah. between yeah. the two. Yeah. Okay. Because I think, yeah, I mean, they've made it pretty clear with the noble lie that they, they don't always have to be truthful. But uh, <laughs> I think it's just the, 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 the knowledge is truth if it's if it's real knowledge. Yeah, that's that's yeah. that's a good point because yeah, one of the things he hits on is like, oh, that they, they, you know, they're lovers of truth. And that was the mm-hmm. first thing that came to mind. I was like, right, lovers of truth, eh? What about that noble lie you're banging on? You're banging on about <laughs> a chapter or two back. <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, and I, I think as they're sort of like talking about sort of like the, the philosopher now, they, they start to sort of talk about, I think, like the the forming of a philosopher, like from a, like being a child or something like that. And they sort of talk about, you know, from an early age that, you know, a philosopher will desire all truth. Um, and if he desires truth um, as a strong desire, um, they question whether they'll be a bit weaker in some other desires or other attributes, I suppose. Yeah, that's um, right. Actually, yeah, interestingly, they, yeah, he, he does kind of go on to um, raise something that they sort of haven't, 
um, mentioned in the discussions of virtues prior um, when he says, you must see, yeah, you're right, because he's picking out things that if you observe in someone, you know that they may not have a philosophic nature. Yeah. And I might be skipping one here, but he says, you must see it has no, <clears throat> you must see that the philosophic nature has no touch of meanness, pettiness of mind is quite incompatible with um, the constant attempt to gra grasp the divine human being yeah uh, as a whole in their entirety so that's interesting because it hasn't that's something that hasn't really come up before is this idea of um meanness and pettiness is not uh consummate with a philosophic nature yeah um i think that yeah, there was an interesting sort of way they put it in our text too i think it was um there should be no secret corner of illiberality nothing can be more um antagonistic than uh, meanness to a soul which is ever longing after the whole of things both divine and human. Um, illiberal yeah, was an interesting heaps. word. I had to, had to look that yeah, one up. I was going to say, yeah, that's that's heaps different from my translation. So, what, what did uh, what did you come across when you're looking into illiberal? Well, that's literally the opposite of liberal. So, uh, principles restricting freedom of thought and behaviour, anti-democratic behaviour. Mm. Interesting oh, word. So might be able to resurrect that one. <laughs> yeah, I like it. So is it they're equating that with meanness and pettiness of mind? Is that sort yep. of... Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah, I'm going to use that. Illiberal. That's going to be my word for the week. <laughs> so, is, so illiberality is the word it says. So I read that in my Western Sydney as illiberality. <laughs> yeah. Um, is that right? Like, yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. Right. Okay, so illiberality. Yeah. So that's being illiberal. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, okay. I think so. <laughs> yeah, because I was, yeah, I was as the act of being illiberal. Yes. I actually, I actually read that line at, at Ruben's place, and I was like, "What's that word?" And he goes, "Oh, um, mine says no touch of meanness or pettiness." I was like, "Okay." So I just that wrote, wrote that in my book. <laughs> <laughs> I say every time I come across something like because every week when we do our reading there's one or two that sort of jump out at me that I go it's an unusual word I'm, I'm not familiar with so uh, mm. yeah, this, this is my homework <laughs> <laughs> well look we're learning things this is good I know. it is, it is. <laughs> um, and they start talking about uh, you know true philosophers um, at this point in time who have a magnificence of mind uh, and a spectator of all time and existence and what they think yes. of human life and saying, well, no, they, they won't fear death. Um, so they, they can't be a coward, basically, um, because they see more than, than just life and death, I guess. I'll read that paragraph. I'd be interested to hear what your translation sound like. But mine says, and if a man has greatness of mind and a breadth of vision to contemplate all time and all reality... Can he regard human life as a thing of any great consequence? Mm. That comes out very differently. Yeah. That sounds like human life doesn't really matter. But I, I yeah, think... that's right. Because I um, when I've I've read my book and I'm like, that sounds really. Oh, I don't know what the word for it is. Um, almost callous towards uh, human mm. existence. Mm. But that's not the way it comes through on your translations. I, I'm trying to find the actual passage, when, but uh, when when I read I it, it made me think of that Bible quote where it says, "What is man that you would consider him?" I can't quite remember verbatim. I'm, you know, I'm bad at that. Do you know the verse I mean, Reuben? Oh, I'm not sure, but the one that it made me think of that the life is but a vapor. 
Yeah, no, there's another one that what is man that you would consider him or something like that. It's like when I look at the heavens or Sounds I'll have like to look Job. it up. I'll have to look it up. It might be. Um, might be from the end of Job. What do you think? I, what you, you tell me what you think, Lachlan? While I find that verse. Uh, look, I, I actually sort of thought it sounded a little bit like how Rubes is saying, and but I guess it was only when they sort of drew that connection to them about not being a coward that I was like, oh, okay. That's I what think they're getting at. Yeah, yeah, that's the way I I'm thought not... too. But yeah. um, I'm, I'm just, I'm just curious, like if, if, if that's what it takes to be to not be a coward, mm. is there a sort of a dark side to that? <laughs> you know, I don't think he means it that way. But is there, is that it might be a necessary, you know, side effect to to that kind of thinking? Like if you really are just considering, you know, these big great cosmic things, and everything else becomes less important. Are yeah. you going to step on people? I mean, Plato, I mean, Socrates has already said, you know, if you can't fulfill your role in society, maybe you're better off just dying. So is this is this is this rearing its ugly head again? Yeah, look, you could be right. I mean, uh, I, I can sort of see the, the full quote there, and look, I, I, I'd already sort of paraphrase it pretty closely anyway. But um, and then, can, how can he who has a magnificence of mind and is a spectator of all time and all existence think much of human life? Uh, yeah, because one of the one of the criticisms of um, ideologues or ideology or philosophy in in the modern times is that like it comes up with these grand ideas like utopia or utopianism. Mm. Um, so it's got this this you know this really grand scale thing to aim at, but then in the process of getting there, it will willingly tread on people. You know, um, so I, I don't know whether it's whether, Maybe I'm being a little bit uncharitable to old Socrates, but that that that's just where my my mind went when I read that passage. I, well, I got the same vibe, but I I think they were talking about more about fear of their own mortality, maybe that's right, right. Than yeah. that of others. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Um, the the verse I was thinking of, by the way, is Psalm chapter eight, verse four. Um, so it's uh, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them, um. You know, it, it's because God is eternal. That so it's that same idea because God's eternal and across everything. Like, yeah, what is what is man in regards like in relation to that? This massive thing. It's a. I think it's a really. It just felt really familiar for me. I know it's not related, but I think the two. I think it is linked in that the the idea is that when you have. A viewpoint that is, for lack of a better term, eternal. Then, then what is the significance of a human life? Hmm. Uh, I think it's. I think both of those things are saying a similar idea. And I've I've heard modern you're... day people say that same thing. Like I've heard, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Brian Cox, Professor Brian Cox, talk about that. Um, and that uh, the other one, the Neil Neil deGrasse Tyson, on. Mm -hmm. um, his uh what was that documentary that he did five years ago or so well not documentary yeah i know the one you mean yeah um uh cosmos on cosmos they talk about that a bit and they talk about they get like a i think it's a calendar on the screen and they show that the entirety of human existence fits into like a ridiculously small amount of time what is it three minutes or a couple of seconds something like that um so it's just that argument of when time is so big, we're so little. But I think um, I think I, you're no, right, I, I think it's a, a thing about 
not being a coward as opposed to having no care for anybody else. But I think you're right, though. I think it's it's necessarily linked because it, it, even if at the start of chapter six, when he's talking about a philosopher, he's saying they have the capacity to grasp eternal and immutable truths. So I think there's necessarily a, an idea of almost infinity in that. Like it's a really like a really big thing, something that's almost beyond comprehension. Yeah. Anyway, interesting. Hmm. It definitely For is sure. interesting. <laughs> um, so after I guess they, they talk about the sort of um, the fact that they won't be a coward um, I guess they're sort of talking about how they can sort of separate the like who's of a philosophical nature from an unphilosophical so there's a, there's a short quote I might as well read that one that just kind of give the um, give the gist of it yeah, uh, or again not- he who is uh, harmoniously constituted who is not covetous or mean or a boaster or a coward can he, I say, ever be unjust or harden his dealings? Impossible. Then we will soon observe whether a man is just and gentle or rude and unsociable. And these are the signs that will distinguish, even in youth, the philosophical nature from the unphilosophical. Um, but I guess he's just yeah. putting the seal on the deal there. Yeah. I think, and then I think he, throw, he throws in there, they, they need to be quick at learning and have a good memory. Um, which I think that's yeah. all pretty fair, you know, that's kind of, almost kind of obvious. Although I did notice he's, <laughs> when he's talking about someone who's not um, quick at, I had a joke about this with Timmy too. He said, uh, if somebody's not quick at learning, so he'll labor in vain and in the end be driven to hate himself and the whole business of learning. And I'm like, that kind of sounds like he's describing ADD. <laughs> <laughs> Look. I, I love how they keep referring to this, uh, Will he not be an empty vessel? Yeah. <laughs> it's like you're an empty head. Isn't there a quote about um, the, the emptiest vessels are the loudest or something like that? I'm sure that's a philosophical quote. I'll have to find that too. <laughs> no, I had to uh, have a bit of a chuckle at that one though, where they're talking about the uh, empty vessels. Basically, if you've, it's not that you're dumb, but you've just got a bad memory. And I was like, well, that's me. Like I'd be out. There's yeah, no I know, I can't remember anything. <laughs> Hopeless. <laughs> yeah, we, we obviously wouldn't tick the boxes for this bloke that's leading the country. Not that I'd want to, but yeah. <laughs> that's all right. The US <laughs> president couldn't remember his name either, so that's all right. He's <laughs> <laughs> our, our, uh, our mate from down under. Because I can't there remember his name. There's, um, <laughs> yeah. Apparently, it's actually a Plato quote. So, as empty vessels make the loudest sound... So they that have the least wit are the greatest blabbers. <laughs> nice. That's not bad. Nice. Not bad at all. Good quote. All right. So, oh, yeah, so yeah, let's let's keep going. There's plenty to get through tonight. So hmm. you don't want to be an empty head. Um, and they must have a good memory. And um, so then they say, so... Besides other qualities, we must try to find a naturally well-proportioned and gracious mind, which will move spontaneously toward the true being of everything. Yeah. So they agree. Um, so this this is where they move on again. So um, they're saying, okay, so here's, here's the summary of everything they've just talked about. So um, let's, let's just continue reading for where I just left there. So it goes... Um, well, 
uh, and do not all these qualities which we have been enumerating go together and are they not in a manner necessary to a soul which is to have a full and perfect participation of being they are absolutely necessary he replied and must not that be a blameless study which he only can pursue who has the gift of a good memory and is quick to learn noble gracious the friend of truth justice courage temperance who are his kindred the god of jealousy himself he said could find no fault with such a study uh, and to men uh, like him i said when perfected by years and education and to these only you will entrust the state i think i think my version's better for the first time oh okay read away he says <laughs> Momus himself could find no fault there. So apparently, that's the god of what was it? The god of jealousy. Momus. How's it spelled? Momus. Momus. M O M U S. Yeah, I like it with a bit of uh, paprika on the top. My momus. It's great. <laughs> um. Yeah. So you're right. They kind of wrap it up. Um and say yeah that's that's your that's your dude i just googled momus apparently it's a scottish songwriter (laughs) (laughs) whose name is nicholas nick curry born the 11th of february 1960 more popularly known under the artist name momus He's a weird looking really, dude. Uh, he was tapping into the Oracle of Delphi who could see to the future, Tim, to be able well, to identify him. He actually has an eye patch and he looks like the car- the actor who plays Littlefinger in Game of Thrones. He looks a bit like that dude. <laughs> <laughs> weird. Well, I guess anyway. I might listen to some Momus after the podcast. Yes. yes, we will have to do that. If it's any good, I'll put it in the description link. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, now we get the uh, the big interjection. Yeah, Adamantus um, is back oh, yeah. at it. Yep, they wake up. They're like, hang on. They're <laughs> stepping up to the plate. Um, so uh, do you want to read this re- one, Tim? Or? Oh, sure, I can do that. Um, okay. Here, Adamantius. Adamantius. What is this, Wolverine? Adamantium. <laughs> Here, Adamantius imposed and said, To these statements, Socrates, no one can offer a reply. But when you talk in this way, a strange feeling passes over the minds of your hearers. They fancy that they are led astray a little at each step in the argument, owing to their own want of skill in asking and answering questions. These littles accumulate, and at the end of the discussion they are found to have sustained a mighty overthrow, and all their former notions appear to be turned upside down. And as unskillful players of droughts, drafts, drafts are at last shut up by their more skillful adversaries and have no peace to move, so they too find themselves shut up at last, for they have nothing to say in this new game of which words are the counters, and yet all the time they are in the right. The observation is suggested to me by what is now occurring. For any one of us might say that although in words he is not able to meet you at each step of the argument, he sees a fact that the votaries of philosophy, when they carry on the study, not only in youth as a part of education, but as the pursuit of their maturer years, most of them become strange monsters, 
not to say utter rogues, and that those who may be considered the best of them are made useless to the world by the very study which you extol. That's <laughs> uh, gold. What? He just nails him. Just nails him. Yeah. <laughs> so what's he saying in layman's terms? Socrates, you're getting us to agree to all this like little offshoot stuff. I mean, like you get one agreement there and then you roll on to the next one. You get an agreement there, roll on to the next one. And we've suddenly agreed to something way down the track that we had no intention to agreeing to. <laughs> it's just a little garden path. It's exactly what he does though, isn't it? Yeah, 100%. It is. yeah. But then yeah, but then he goes, and, and the thing that we, we all know is that philosophers end up growing up to be the men from gonna do yeah they, they, they don't do anything <laughs> yeah he does he basically says there's like a, a pretty broad societal opinion that you guys are pretty much uh useless or uh malicious yeah my version says um i actually like my version on this one he says most of them become very odd birds, not to say thoroughly vicious. And you can you can kind of understand why. I must admit, when I was first reading this, I thought it just must mean that they're so caught up with their own thoughts that they just like just don't have a touch of reality and I just got their head in the clouds, <laughs> too too highfalutin and uh, not down to earth and all that sort of thing. Um, but. Uh, you know, as we read on, we sort of uncover a bit more, and surprisingly, uh, Socrates agrees with him, which was a yeah. plot twist well, I, I wasn't actually, expecting. I actually think what's about to come. I feel like this is the first time in the book where Socrates is really, um, like really coming out. He's coming out of the closet. Socrates is coming out of the closet, on this. <laughs> <laughs> and he's um. That's he's not a toga. Like, That's a dress. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> he's like no, this is he's basically comes comes and goes this is this is how i really feel about this stuff i feel yeah. like what comes from this is very 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 flowing they're not dragging it out of him at this point he really starts to fire up yeah. um, which is good and he goes yeah that's right <laughs> this is kind of funny he goes he just goes oh the answer the answer to that question i said i must give you an illustration and um adam answers is um response to that is priceless because Socrates is like, well, let me give you another analogy. And then Adamantus says, and I'll let you read your sections because I think your sections sound better. Yes, Socrates. And that is a way of speaking to which you are not at all accustomed, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's basically like, here we go. Another another analogy. You haven't yeah. done this before. <laughs> That's all you do, Socrates. That's all you do. <laughs> <laughs> but the sarcasm is very thick. Yeah, for sure. I could appreciate that in this uh, in this book. It is entertaining to read. <laughs> well, yeah, it I was really kinda, is. I was on board, though. I was on board. Yeah. I was like, he's right, Socrates, what are you going to do? And then typically he does. He gives an analogy, and then you kind of start to go, oh, hang on. He's not as dumb as he sounds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love the fact that he starts to set the scene before he even tells the uh, the parable, though, and uh, saying that in order to to show the the outcomes, we need to, you know, uh, make some unlikely imaginations and talks of fabulous <laughs> unions of goats and stags as seen in the pictures. Okay, oh my That's God, right. what are we, what are we about to uncover here? 
it's pretty good but then uh they i think it's time for me to get my drink out again Ooh, that's go. right we're about to hit the nautical analogy so, so uh, you know, yeah. crack out the crack and rum i'm gonna get that's out it. my crack and rum and uh let's get ready for the the sea shanty arguments no it's not a sea shanty argument but the argument around the what would you call it the incompetent captain and his crew yeah that's yeah, not bad uh, more mm. or less yeah. Alright, let's let's dig in. Yeah, so I, I guess uh, I haven't got the, the full quote here, but I'll just um, sort of talk through it, I guess. Uh, so basically, they're talking about an example of where you could have like a ship's captain and he's stronger and taller than all the crew, but in our version, he's sort of talking about him being a little blind and deaf and that he's actually not that great a navigator, which is kind of the prime function for, uh, for the <laughs> captain, right? Um. And since he's a weak navigator, all the crew are arguing about, you know, how and where they need to steer, but none of them are equipped with the knowledge of navigation. And um, more or less, the, the, the crew mutinies, drugs the captain, kill each other if they disagree <laughs> with each other, um, take possession of the stores and basically go to town, just going wild. And uh, the sailors who help in the mutiny are held in high esteem by the mutineers. Um, and I, I think that's, uh, that's just a bit of foreshadowing, planting a seed there in that little example. Um, yeah. and more or less, I think they're sort of saying is like the pilot or the captain, they need to pay attention to their art to be able to guide the ship and not any old sailor can do it. Um, but when you're looking at the ship in a state of mutiny, um, how would they, uh, regard the pilot? How would they regard the captain? Um, and I think they said something along the lines of they'd be regarded as a stargazing prat, which I thought was just hilarious. <laughs> That's right. So they're basically saying if, if there was like one dude on this ship who actually knew about navigation and was studying the stars and the seasons and everything he needs to knew to do to yeah. know which direction to go, they would just look at him and basically go, nerd. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So right. basically they got, they got no idea. No idea. But, um... Yeah, so, the, so to break down the analogy, I, from what I can tell, the captain in this analogy is like current leadership because he's bigger and he's stronger and that's the only reason he read, leads. He doesn't really know what he's doing. And as he gets old and weaker, someone's going to take over and they're basically saying that the people they're going to take over aren't any better than the bloke that was already in charge. And I think in this analogy, the knowledge of navigation is, is philosophy. For sure. Like that's, yeah. So, the, and, and he's saying, so the, the, the old boss didn't really know anything. So the new people that are going to take over by force, they don't really know anything. They don't know any better. And then the one bloke who's uh, actually knows something, he's just going to get ridden off because, you know, they're not going to want to give over power to him. They've just, you know, done all this drugging and fighting to get to the top. Is that roughly where it's, what, what he's saying? I think so. Yeah, I think he's also sowing the seed for the uh, the sophist sort of argument that's to come yeah. as well. Yeah, I think um, you because, think you're right. Yeah, which is funny because about... it's funny because Adam Anders has just said, no, 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 don't do this stuff where you get us to agree to one little thing and then the next and the next. And the, what he instantly does is get him to agree to one little thing, which he's going to build on later. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, I think but that's that... glorious. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i think you're right about this office like it's he's saying that the captain isn't like great at that craft 
Yep. And, and so, yeah, I think you're right. But I think it's also demonstrating that if a true craftsman came along, they'll be put in the same sure. category as the sophists that's already been overthrown. And so the whole society is like, or, or the whole crew rather, is uh, like, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if, if they prescribe to that, then they're just a waste of time like the old guy was. Well, I, I think it was also that part about, you know, the people who helped with the mutiny, who are basically ignorant, are being held up in high esteem. And I think that's the, sort of the argument for the sophists as well, because it's like basically you're a bunch of monkeys just agreeing with popular opinion here and you're all patting each other on the back, but you're a pack of idiots. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's being a bit more subtle about it, but I think that's what he's kind of getting at. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yep. Okay. Yeah, so, so um, I, I guess if you really, if you really had to boil it down, what he's saying is, well, you, you're saying that you know philosophers are useless and, and and people don't like them, and he's saying, well, how can you um, how can you say that? Essentially, how can you say they're useless if nobody's listening to them? Yep. Yeah. Well, do, yeah. And that's the thing about the stargazing prat thing as well, because like he's saying, like that's how you guys look at us philosophers, um, and you don't understand the value that we can give you guys and because you don't understand the work and, and the skill and the effort that we sort of put into these things, our skills aren't understood. So you don't value yeah, us. And you haven't, you haven't even bothered listening to us. So what's the point? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I can actually read that quote because it's quite short and he, I think he nails it. So he goes, um, yep. so after he goes, to be called a prata, a stargazer, a good for nothing. Of course, said Adamantus. Um, then you will hardly need, I said, to hear the interpretation of the figure, which describes the true philosopher in his relation to the state, for you understand already, certainly. Then suppose you now take this parable to the gentleman who is surprised at finding that philosophers have no honour in their cities. Explain it to him and try to convince him that their having honour would be far more extraordinary. So I will. So yeah, he's saying apply this principle to that of the philosopher. <laughs> That's pretty obvious. The answer's there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and Adamantus <laughs> just agrees. I think and Adamantus seems to be happy. He's like, Oh, okay, so you've now given me an argument that I can bring to the people that say this kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I think uh, I mean look he's always pretty um He's always looking to be satisfied, right? Because he agrees yeah. with Socrates and he's looking for those those reasons to hold it up. Um, so it makes a lot of sense there. Um, yeah, there was some other... The same sort of quote that you had there, Tim. Um, for these reasons, um, among men like these, philosophy, the noblest pursuit of all, is not likely to be much esteemed by those of the opposite faction. Uh, not that the greatest and most lasting injury is done to her by opponents, uh, but by her own professing followers, the same of whom you suppose the accuser to say that the greater number of them are arrogant rogues and the best are useless, in which opinion yeah. I agreed. <laughs> so then he goes, yes. So, and the reason why the good are useless has now been explained. True. That's it. Then shall we proceed to show that the corruption of the majority is also unavoidable and that this is not to be laid to the charge of philosophy any more than the other, by all means. 
So this is now where I think he, what, blames society? Uh, yeah, yeah. kind of. More or less. Mm. That's right, because he goes on to kind of say, all right, so we've established that uh, part of the problem is that, well, you're saying they're useless, but nobody listens to them, so how would you know? Mm. Uh, and then he goes, but what have, um, but he goes to say the ones that are actually bad, let's, let's, just, let's, let's explore why it is that they're bad philosophers, like why are they mm. so useless in society? Why do they become, was it errant rogues? My book, I think, or one of the translations said, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, it does say errant rogues. <laughs> There's another saying we need yeah. to bring back. What an errant. What is it? Errant? I think errant, I think what errant an means errant error. Road. Errant rogue. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, more or less they're sort of pointing out now that that I think life and society as it exists now makes it very difficult for um, philosophers to, to really remain true to the cause, I guess. Um, and they're talking about, I suppose, like the pressures and distractions of society. So um, there's a little quote that I had there. Um, then there are all the ordinary goods of life, beauty, wealth, strength, rank, and great connections in the state. You understand the sort of things? These also have a corrupting and distracting effect. Um and you can sort of say that, you know, he's, he's basically sort of saying that, you know, great minds at this point in time are capable of good or evil. And uh, I suppose it's a matter of um, education around like how you can try and sort of steer them. But society um, and the, the wants in the society make it really hard to, um, to stay the course. Yeah, you're right. And I'm just trying to see how else it explains that but it's 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 kind of saying that if they've got the skill set of a philosopher then they're probably going to get distracted some at some time anyway because they'll get put in the limelight right yeah i mean uh, i think they're sort of saying like i think like young philosophers as they're um sort of being educated even can be picked upon like particularly the, there's something there about them being you know if they've got a a keen mind but also of like you know good body and i think they're meaning like you know just an attractive you know fellow or whatever as well and people are going to identify them and sort of say you know what you're probably like a future leader um you know you're really switched on and all this sort of thing and so they get kind of pulled into this situation i guess where there's other people who are trying to you know encourage them and um you know pay them lots of compliments and things like that you know inflate their egos for their own gain because they want to keep that person on side and kind of influencing them to their own sort of means and so i think they're really just trying to set the scene that it's really hard i think for a um you know a philosopher not to become sort of inflated with their own self-importance if they're surrounded by important people who are pumping up their ego and uh, telling them what they want to hear and they you know may well wind up sort of like a you know effectively becoming something that they that they shouldn't be um yeah basically designing what their philosophy is around the applause of the audience yeah i mean they specifically sort of talk to that um 
you know, thing. He talks about like the poisoning of their societies by the uh, the sophists, and that it's hard to resist the lure of public opinion. Um, he does sort of have an example there about you know having a young man at a oh they give like it could be a few different sort of things, but you know whether it's a play or a, a speech or something like that, and it's hard to maintain the the voice of reason when you've got this crowd or, you know, booing or cheering or whatever for something that you don't believe in, but you could have your heart swayed because the mass around you and everyone's making this, this noise. And it's basically saying that it's really hard to resist for a young person. Yeah. Um, I think he uses the analogy of a seed as well, doesn't he? To describe the young, the young philosopher of it. I'm just trying to find that quote. Yeah. Yeah, here it is. Sorry, were you going to read something, Ruby? Oh, I was going to read the bit where he describes the crowd. He's, he's pretty yeah, unflattering. Go for it. Go for it. Um, yeah, when they come to popular meetings, with a great deal of noise and a great lack of moderation, shout and clap their approval or disapproval to whatever is purpose or done till, rocks, uh, till the rocks of the whole place re-echo and redouble the noise of their boots and applause. Can a young man's heart remain unmoved by all of this? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, you can totally see that too, you know, um, you know, because, you know, a young person would be filled with a bit of like self-doubt. Everyone else thinks it's this. I think it's something else, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, yeah, a bit of peer yeah. pressure. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll go on to the seed quote because I think it's good too if you guys don't mind sure go for it. Um, so it says uh, we all know that germs or seeds whether vegetable or animal when they fail to meet with proper nutrients or climate or soil in proportion to their vigour are all the more sensitive to the want of a suitable environment for evil is a greater enemy to what is good than what is not um, I guess uh, very true there is reason in supposing that the finest natures when under alien conditions receive more injury than the inferior because the contrast is greater, certainly. And may we not say, Edimentius, that the most gifted minds, when they are ill-educated, become preeminently bad. Do not great crimes in the spirit of pure evil spring out of a fullness of nature ruined by education rather than from any inferiority, whereas weak natures are scarcely capable of any very great good or very great evil there i think you are right yeah so i think he's just sort of saying that um you know those highly intelligent people are capable of the very best and the very worst and it's incumbent on that education to try and make sure they're on the path to good um whereas you know someone who's of a simpler mind whether they're good or evil is probably not gonna have the bigger impact because they're they're not going to uh it's just a different sort of scale, I guess they're sort of saying there. Yeah. yeah. I think, and I think after that, he goes on to say, and then on top of that, you've got um, the punishment, dis, dis, disenfranchisement, fines or death, which these educational experts inflict on those who won't listen to them imposing sanctions um, where persuasion doesn't, hasn't, has failed. So he's saying that on top of this peer pressure, you've then got um, people who are teaching them and you can't disagree with them because, you know, there's consequences for disagreeing with them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was another uh, wacky word in here that I pulled out. This was the threat of attainder, which I'd never heard of before. Oh. Um, so attainder is a, 
historical word for the forfeiture of lands and civil rights suffered as a consequence of a sentence of death for treason or felony. Well, there you go. Okay. Pretty heavy. So seize your lands, take your wealth, take away your, your, your title or respect. So that's, so he's talking about the, the coercion by the sophists and I suppose like, uh, you know, You're just government the ruling classes. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. To yeah suppress well, that's very true. I mean, yeah. it's true. I mean, if you go against the grain of what society, of what the popular opinion is, there's, there's going to be consequences and some of those are going to be legal. Hmm. Yeah, and he sort of says, now what opinion of any other sophist or any other private person can be expected to overcome in such an unequal contest? None, he replies. You know, so, um, you know, they all agree that, you know, you can't really, it's hard to beat that situation. Um, Yeah, he says anything short of a miracle, you would say. Hmm. Yeah, uh, no, indeed, I said, even to make the attempt is a great piece of folly. There neither is, nor has been, nor is ever likely to be any different type of character which has had no other training in virtue but that which is supplied by public opinion. I speak, my friend, of human virtue only. What is more than human, as the proverb says, is not included. For I would not have you ignorant that in the present evil state of governments, whatever is saved and comes to good is saved by the power of God as we may truly say. Pretty powerful yeah. statement. Yeah. He's pretty, um, like he's pretty, he's pretty damning towards whatever the, the setup was in his days, the, the, the governments that were around in his time. He's, he's pretty negative towards them. He's basically saying anything that's good that comes out of them is really by blessing of the of, of blessings of God, you know, like, because yeah. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with uh, them or their, um, or their, their talents because they're pretty rotten. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to think that's a pretty scandalous statement for him to just sort of like roll out, particularly in the, the company that they're holding right there because if you remember, um, you know, some of the the earlier statement he sort of said about, um, you know, that philosophers should be the the leaders and basically the people <laughs> who are in there aren't fit for it. And Adam Anders like, that's whoa, right. like, <laughs> you can't just go and drop like- those bombs in here. So... I think this would have been just as spicy, to be honest. Um, it's exactly so, yeah. it's exactly what he says will happen. Like, uh, so so he goes, you know, basically philosophers must inevitably fall under the centre of the world. Um, and then later, uh, he goes, and even if there be someone who, through inherent goodness or natural reasonableness, had his eyes open a little and is humbled and taken captive by philosophy, how will his friends behave? when they think that they are likely to lose the advantage which they were hoping to reap from his companionship, will they not do and say anything to prevent him from yielding to his better nature and to render his teacher powerless, using to this end private intrigues as well as public prosecutions? There can be no doubt about it. And and how can one who is thus circumstanced ever become a philosopher? It's impossible. Yeah. Yeah, um, is that before or after the bit where they do the where he's got the analogy of feeding a beast? It's after. Okay. Yeah. Well, we may as well talk yeah, about the right. beast then. We'll Let's talk about the beast, <laughs> and then we can talk about the bald little tinker. <laughs> okay. So I've driven over um, you for the beast. Yeah, yeah. So just before what what Tim was pointing out, um, the the um. 
they're talking because they just got off talking about well you know the, there's all this societal influence and you know the teachers are going to teach them wrong and there's going to be repercussions if you don't learn right from them um he kind of almost makes an apology for these sophists in the sense that he or it's it's not really an apology it's kind of a bit of both he's kind of essentially saying this is the way they behave and they're behaving this way because of the way that society is structured but He's, it's it's also not a particularly flattering way to describe them. Essentially, what he's saying is, it's like you've got a man and he has a powerful beast, and he's studying he's studying this beast and he's studying its moods, and he's feeding it and he's looking after it, um, and he knows what will make it you know savage or make it gentle. So his behaviour then be, adapts to keep this beast happy, essentially. And what he's saying is that's kind of what these teachers end up doing because you've got these masses of people that have that think a certain way. So they'll end up just teaching what is going to keep them happy and keep them placated rather than what is true, um, which is essentially his definition of what a sophist is. They're saying what people want to hear or what will make them money or what will keep the beast calm rather than uh, teaching people what is actually true. And, and then label that technique as wisdom which I yes. thought was a good yeah. little bit at the end. And, yeah, I mean, does that is that how he feels about animal husbandry? <laughs> like in the earlier <laughs> chapters about, is that why he doesn't like people calling, uh, you know, breeding horses wisdom? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. That's a great analogy, though. It, it, it's it is. spot on. Well, um, yeah, I, think it's, I, don't, um, I don't know whether you... I don't yeah, know whether it's kind of reading. I don't know whether it's kind of sorry, mate. I don't know whether it's kind of reading too much into it. But when he's talking about you know the crowds and the masses, and they just get ginned up and you know they just uh, express their disapproval with loud anger, and then you combine that with what he's talking about here about the type of people who are going to teach, and assumably the sophists are the kind of people who are trying to teach leaders it's almost starting to add up to me as kind of like a negative critique of democracy. Um, I thought he was talking about Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, that's true. Like if you're going to go on Twitter, <laughs> I don't use Twitter, but if you're going to go on Twitter and you want to be popular, what kind of stuff are you going to post? You're going to post things that are popular are gonna, and get you those hits. Yeah, sure. exactly. you just you're just placating the beast. You're feeding the beast. So, so by by Socrates' <coughs> definition, our show about philosophy being successful should mean that no one watches it, or very 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 few people do. <laughs> so maybe maybe we are doing philosophy correctly. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we established that our, our memories we're not quick enough at learning, and our memories are not good enough to be philosophers. That's true. That's true. <laughs> well, I just found um, yeah. there, there was a good uh, quote in that section. I might um, just read out if that's all right, Rubes. Um, yeah, go for it. He's saying, um, like when they're talking about the beast, um, good he pronounces to be that in which the beast delights and evil to be that which he dislikes. And he can give no other account of them except that they are just and noble are the, are the necessary having never himself seen and having no power of explaining to others the nature of either or the difference between them, which is immense. And so he's just basically sort of saying like, 
you know what to do to make this thing happy or to make it you know unhappy but you have no idea why that's happening or should it happen you're not asking any questions about it all you're doing is parroting a learned behavior and you know you have no real knowledge um <clears throat> it's like teaching a monkey to press buttons and learning that if they press the right button they get food um, yeah that yeah. kind of goes back into what it, what they were saying earlier about the difference between opinion and 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 knowledge you're saying mm. you're saying yeah they're just looking at instances and applying what works rather than looking what is actually true and what it, what the ultimate reality is yeah it's just behavioral it's not it's not knowledge at all it's it's almost like a you could act on um reflex without thinking about something it's like um you, you could watch someone's face and tell if they are accepting it or not and then just change your your diatribe a little bit to to suit it in order to to sort of get where you want to be um yeah 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 that mm. that, that just don't have that why and i think that's that's obviously what philosophy is about is is the why and what is it about that thing mm. and it's obviously like a very basic skill um you know i think is what he's comparing the this the sophist operation to and that it's not a sign of great intelligence of a human um you know the fact that you can learn how to manipulate the system um just based on some of those behavioral things i think he's been pretty scathing towards the sophist there yeah and he uses yeah, yeah. This, this is where he uses the next analogy to describe the sophist i think uh because he goes um and so philosophy is left desolate with her marriage right incomplete for her own have fallen away and forsaken her and while they are leading a false and unbecoming life other unworthy persons seeing that she has no kinsmen to be her protectors enter in and dishonor her and fasten her and fasten upon her the reproaches which as you say her reprovers utter who affirm of her votaries that some are good for nothing and that the greater number deserve the severest punishment that is certainly what people say. Um, so I'll just keep reading because they say it better than I ever can. Uh, yes, and what else would you expect, I said, when you think of the puny creatures who seen this land open to them, a land well stocked with fair names and showy titles, like prisoners running out of a prison into a sanctuary, take a leap out of their trades into philosophy. Those who do so being probably the cleverest, uh, the cleverest uh, hands at their own miserable crafts for although philosophy be in this evil case still there remains a dignity about her which is not to be found in the arts and many are thus attracted by her whose natures are imperfect and whose souls are maimed and disfigured by their meanness as their bodies are by their trades and crafts is this uh, is not this unavoidable yes are they not exactly like a bored little tinker who has just got out of endurance and come into fortune he takes a bath and puts on a new coat and is decked out as a bridegroom going to marry his master's daughter who is left poor and desolate a most exact parallel <laughs> what will be the issue of such marriages will they not be vile and bastard there can be no question of it so yeah yep. i think it's a great example there yeah, he's going back to that whole thing too about talking about like 
people need to do the job that they're best suited to in in society and that's sort of part of that thing he was sort of talking about with their fictional um the fictional state um you know when you've got people and they're moving between classes and functions and not doing the one that they should be doing i think he was thinking about this sort of thing the whole time um when he was talking about yeah. that earlier yeah you're right i didn't pick up on that i think you're dead right well he comes to the conclusion which is and when persons who are unworthy of education approach philosophy and make an alliance with her who is a rank above them what sort of ideas and opinions are likely to be generated will they not be sophisms captivating to the ear having nothing in them genuine or worthy of or akin to true wisdom no doubt yeah you're just going to uh yeah to, to lean on popular opinion and tell people what they want to hear and get lots of cheers hopefully make some money get some uh get some uh credit and clicks on your uh on your tweets and uh <laughs> yeah so you reckon that's why socrates is so hard up on saying you know you get your class and you stick to it i think that's part of it um and i don't think it's like protectionism for him um i think he'd be quite happy to have lots of uh philosophers um so long as you're up to the task and are going to do, do it properly. Um, you know, if you're making pottery last week and you just want to be a, uh, a superstar of philosophy, then it's not for you, buddy. Off you trot. <laughs> it's interesting because as a person that is not a philosopher by trade, I read this and think, does that mean I should stop reading this book? <laughs> Am I in the wrong yeah. place here? Maybe we should just only if you out. quit your job to become a philosopher. <laughs> I think that's the uh, the demarcation. But wouldn't he but argue you... that that would even make me an even worse sophist? Because I'm not even a full time sophist. I'm a casual sophist. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, it's fine. Uh, I reckon he's probably like you know you're fine. It's good to study it, right? Because they say that like that should be part of all education, right? whether you become a philosopher or not. And so I think this is just part of your education, Tim. So it's okay. So hang on. So it's it's acceptable for everyone to be a student, but only the right people can be the teacher. Is that essentially what he's saying? A full-time philosopher, yeah. yeah. I think, you know, if that's going to be your calling, then you have to hit the, the, the total attributes to become that sort of function. Hmm. Interesting. Well, what is, what is the total attributes of the function? Um, that leads to this next three quarters of a page, which I don't know if those of you only listening on my book, I'm holding it up to camera uh, poorly because I'm useless at knowing where my page is. There it is. And I've just highlighted down the side and written the word, wow. Because <laughs> uh, it's fantastic. Um, I think you've got the same things highlighted guys do you want me to read it or do one of you want to read it this is the um then adamantus i said the that's the one that's the one yeah i'll give it a crack if you like all right rock and roll here we go right. oh then before, adamantus before, sorry sorry before i interrupt you will you finish with as well of himself no oh okay <laughs> are you finishing beyond I, that or before that before that Oh, I think right. we should go to there. Are you happy to go to there? 
I don't have that full quote in front of me because I. Oh. Uh, well, you go to where you were up to, and then I'll continue. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll do it. We'll do a uh, tag. Two part, two part. All right, go. Okay. <laughs> uh, then Adamantus, I said, the worthy disciple of philosophy will be but a small remnant, perchance some noble and well-educated person, detained by exile in her service, who, in the absence of corrupting influences, remains devoted to her, or some lofty soul born in a mean city the politics of which he cont uh, contemns and neglects. And there may be a gifted few who leave the arts, which they justly despise and come to her. Or peradventure, there are some who are restrained by our friend Theages' bridle, for everything in the life of Theages conspired to divert him from philosophy, but ill health kept him away from politics. My own case of the internal sign is hardly worth mentioning, for rarely, if ever, has such a monitor been given to any other man. Those who belong to this small class have tasted how sweet and blessed a possession philosophy is, and have also seen enough of madness of the multitude that they know that no politician is honest, nor is there any champion of justice at whose sides they may fight and be saved. Such a one may be compared to a man who has fallen among wild beasts, he will not join in the wickedness of his fellows, but neither is he able singly to resist all of their fierce natures. And therefore seeing that he would be of no use to the state or to his friends and reflecting that he would have to throw away his life without doing any good either to himself or others, he holds his peace and goes his own way. He is like one who in the storm of dust and sleet uh, which the driving wind hurries along, retires under the shelter of a wall. And seeing the rest of mankind full of wickedness, he is content, if only he can live his own life and be pure from evil or unrighteousness and depart in peace and goodwill with bright hopes. <laughs> Over to you, Tim. Yes, he said, and he will have done a great work before he departs. A great work, yes, but not the greatest, unless he finds a state suitable to him. For in a state which is suitable to him, he will have a larger growth and be the saviour of his country as well as of himself. So that's where I wanted to finish that one. I think it's um, that's an amazing piece of writing right there. Yeah, for sure. Um, this this is a bit... Uh, Rubes were texting on it um, on Saturday... And yeah. uh, I was saying I felt bad for Socrates after that because I just felt his frustration at the society that they live in and at the fact that he cares so much about philosophy and just can't kind of, I think he feels like he can't make enough difference. You know, he's sort of trying but feels like he's sort of pissing in the wind, I guess. Yeah, he just sees it as being misused and abused. And then he contemplates sort of whether, you know, what, what else can I do? And then he realizes it's all futile. All I'm going to do is hurt mm. myself and not make any good difference to others. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and that's right. He describes, he describes that person as just going and sitting under a wall and just watching the world burn, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, I mean, yeah, um, I really, I, I actually really feel for the guy. <laughs> yeah, Lachlan did. My response to that was, "No, nah, dude, that's not why people don't like you. It's because you don't shower and you don't wear shoes." 
<laughs> That's why you're sitting under the wall over there. <laughs> I was joking, obviously, but <laughs> maybe they need to make a deodorant brand for philosophers. <laughs> um, it is, it is pretty moving, though. I, I agree with you. Like, it, it's it, it's very interesting. Um, the more cynical side of me is tempted to listen to that and just go. Uh, yeah, all right, settle down. You think you can solve all the world's problems and they, they won't listen to you. Um, how about maybe you're just not as smart as you think you are and you can't solve all the world problems. Um, but um, no, I can certainly see where he's coming from. Uh, do you think, Tim, I know you're a big fan of stoicism, that little line at the end where he goes, finally, they'll just kind of sit there and um, they'll take their leave and with cheerful, con- they'll, they'll sit there just kind of just with cheerful composure and good hope. What did you do? You think that's kind of almost pointing towards stoicism, like just accepting that uh, you're not maybe not going to make the difference you want, but just to live the life that you want to and, and do the right thing and you know leave the rest rest to fate. I think that's the conclusion of stoicism. Is that well, not, not yeah. maybe the conclusion, but it's a conclusion of stoicism that you can only control your thoughts. Um, they they pretty much acknowledge that you can't control even the body really um but they believe that you have control of the 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 soul uh and that's uh that that's why they're big on you know controlling your response and the way that you perceive things um determines your reality um i I think they weren't the guys to come up with that but i think they prescribe to that impressions model that it's your impressions of events that determine how much you suffer. Um, so yeah, I think I think they align with that for sure. Um, but Adamantus does then go on to say, um, you know, if they do live that way, that's no small achievement. Yeah. So he's like, even doing that can't be easy. I I I read all this and I still immediately think of Marcus Aurelius. It, it, it he. He, I'm not saying he did it perfectly, but he absolutely um, was a model example of how to try and apply these principles. Um, yeah, so I think the other um, example they're sort of going full circle back to is to uh, Polemarchus's father, Cephalus, who right at the very beginning was talking about his meaning to life, which was that and for him, I think what justice was as well, which was leaving life um, with, I think, like a clean slate in the sense that you'd lived a good life and hadn't wronged any other people and had tried to be... the right thing. Yeah, tried to be honest in your dealings. And if I've done that, then I can sleep easy at night. And for me, that's enough. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, very good. Yeah, very good. But it's still not the ultimate goal, right? Like it's, like Socrates is like, yeah, that's that's a pretty good achievement, but it's not, the, it's not the best achievement. Oh, yeah, I, or is he, or is he kind of saying, yeah, that's that that is great. Oh, I'm probably saying the same thing, but yeah, saying yeah, that's great, but wouldn't it? It could be even better. You know, yeah. if the whole society was geared towards allowing this person to actually make that difference. For sure. Um, and you know that's and that's where their perfect state you know makes sense and you can see why he's structuring the state so 
specifically about how he wants this to be because it's it's you know this society where you can have these guardians who are philosopher warriors who aren't going to be tempted away from the right pathway by riches or wealth or um you know trying to one up all the men around them they're going to be pure of thought and and soul and be able to really be true philosophers and that's what he wants right i mean it's a it's a bit self-serving because really he wants to design this whole society to put philosophers in the prime sort of seat if you know what i mean <laughs> I think, for the better yeah, think... mankind in his in his <laughs> view right yeah and I, that's what i mean when i, I said earlier the un, that's this kind of the uncharitable reading of it but i think <laughs> if you combine that with the fact that um socrates is always doing this whole you know i'm i'm the man that knows nothing i'm the one that's mm. always it's kind it comes across as kind of disingenuous because he does sets up these arguments and he goes step by step to get them where he wants but he's also sort of constantly saying well i don't know the answer to this let's think it through so maybe he's not envisaging himself in that position i don't think he necessarily puts himself in it but he puts people i I guess you know could uh could socrates be a a guardian probably not because he doesn't have the power he doesn't have the balance right and he doesn't have shoes yeah yeah that's (laughs) but he i think history shows he had opportunities to try and take over and he wouldn't um Mm. he didn't want to play in that space yeah. yeah. All right. Well, let's let's move on to. Oh, sorry. I'm happy to move on to the next bit. Yeah. Let's move on. Let's move All right. On. Cool. That's cool. Um, so, well, it's kind of the next bit, but it's not. But anyway. So um, once they say, yes, that would be a great work, but there's a greater work exists. Let's continue. So the causes why philosophy is in such an evil name have now been sufficiently explained. The injustice of the charges against her has been shown. Is there anything more which you wish to say? Nothing more on that subject, he replied, but I should like to know which of the governments now existing is, in your opinion, the one adapted to her. Not any of them, I said, and that is precisely the accusation which I bring against them. Not one of them is worthy of the philosophic nature, and hence that nature is warped and estranged as the exotic seed which is sown in a foreign land becomes denaturalized and is wont to be overpowered and to lose itself in the new soil. Even so, this growth of philosophy, instead of persisting, degenerates and receives another character. But if philosophy ever finds in the state that perfection which she herself is, then will be seen that she is in truth divine, and that all other things, whether nature of men or institutions, are but human. And now I know that you are going to ask what that state is so they're, they're saying where, where can this happen where can this philosopher be in charge in the current governments that exist and he's like that's not there yeah yeah well he did say there was uh, one big change he had to make in order to fix everything <laughs> so overthrow the government and install a philosopher king <laughs> <laughs> So we'll have to see what the response to that is next week, I think. Correct. Mm. Uh, and and given how much time we've thrown into that one, I think uh, we will avoid the pub philosophers tonight. And <laughs> uh, 
I think we'll call it a night because um, that was a that was a chunky episode. And I really enjoyed it, and time flew. I, I can't believe how yeah. quickly that went. Yeah, right on, boys. It was good fun. So, um, look for those listening. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, remember, the Republic wasn't built in a day, and neither middle aged men. Uh, have a great week, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Yeah.